Welcome to all of you that are listening to this audio podcast on June the 25th of 2015 on Thursday. Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that before I begin this message, I am seeking to have the Holy Spirit speak through me to the body of Christ. As the Word of God commands in 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so that is what I seek to do, is to speak out of the spirit of prophecy, to allow the Spirit of God to rise up through me and to speak those words that he would be saying to me as an individual, to you who wear Ever you are in the world as an individual, and to the corporate body of Christ, that we might be prepared for the soon return of the one true Almighty's one, the one true God, revealed in this creation in Jesus Christ, the full expression of the one true God into this world. Part of what I do is I cast lots on the scripture to allow God to lead me in his sovereign power to the proper scriptures that he would have me share from. And so I will share with you the scriptures that I received this week. I spent about a half an hour meditating and making notes on the passages, and I do not prepare my messages except for that which I just mentioned meditation and notes. There's a real clear theme I see running through the various passages of Scripture that I received this week, and I first just want to touch on the various passages of Scripture. Probably the theme will be from Joshua chapter 4, but let's go back to the beginning of this week. Let's say we'll start with, I would say, Saturday. And we'll go from Saturday to the present, which is Thursday. On Saturday, I received 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I just summed it up this chapter by making this statement. Many in the last days will call themselves Christians and practice attending worship without a genuine heart to worship God in spirit and in truth, and will deny the power of God to live a holy life. On Monday, I received Ezekiel chapter 20, and I just said a brief statement at the end of various scriptures and so on, which I will probably read later on. It is keeping the Sabbath by ceasing from our own self-initiated choices of independence from God that breaks the root of idolatry in the heart, which causes us to be defiled in the deception of idolatry by the enemy. You see, Sabbath means cessation, the cessation of our own self-initiations and independence of God. And the opposite of the word Sabbath is idolatry, which basically means to carve out 
our own image of God in our heart first, which is then carried out in our lifestyle, whether it's by a literal image of focus or it is by a life of living as our own God. By justifying our own image of God. And on June the 23rd, Tuesday, I received Joshua chapter 4, which is about the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. Many of us, if we've read the Word of God, are familiar with that historical account. And I made the following uh, paragraph in regards to what I meditated on there, which, of course, I will continue to share in far more depth as I begin to share the Word of God. There comes a time to do battle for the Lord and to take a stand for the truth of God by going against opposition to the truth, by stepping right into that opposition. With descending humility before God to receive God's grace and deliverance to make a way where there is no way. We mark our commitment to Christ like the 12 stones that were put into the Jordan River so that we will never turn back but attack under God's instruction. God instructed Israel to attack Jericho, but it was in a specific way. And I will go into that at this point. This is like the waters of baptism. It marks our commitment to Christ and rolls off the distracting burden of the world. And the word Gilgal, which is the city they came up into on the other side of Jordan, means rolling away. Do you remember when your burdens rolled away? I won't go up and get into preaching all this right now. Okay. The distracting burdens of the world are cut off. It is a crossing over from this world to the kingdom of God built upon the 12 stones, which represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Like Abraham, we leave the past and we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. The waters are cut off near Adam, meaning man. At Zeratan, meaning to puncture. When we let our self-sufficiency and human frailty, which represents man, be broken or punctured, there we relinquish trust on to God. And of course, I can read the passage in regards to that. Joshua 3.16, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city of Adam, meaning man, that is, beside Zeratan, meaning puncher. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. On June the 24th of Wednesday, I received Isaiah 66. And I made this paragraph. Those that are part of the New Jerusalem are those that are poor and contrite of spirit, that tremble at the word of the Lord. They are those that mourn for the glory of God to come forth and crod God's bride in Christ. It is those that first mourn for her 
that are commanded to rejoice for joy with her. That is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. This will happen when Christ returns to destroy the Antichrist world system and the beast and false prophet that lead it. In the millennial reign of Christ, those that have transgressed against the Lord will be able to be seen in a fire that is continually eating their flesh with worms in their flesh, also eating their flesh, and will be an abhorrence to look at so that people will choose not to look at them. But it still reminds them when they are so moved to be reminded. And today is Thursday, and I received Micah chapter 6. And I said this, The heart set of God's people in transgression before God is the same as it was with Cain. They think that all their sacrifices will be accepted by God. But what God is looking for is a heart of honesty and humility before him that thereby can genuinely love God and keep his commandments. And here is the verses in regards to what I just mentioned. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. I just briefly want to pray before I begin this message. I haven't to trust God to give me something to share with you, the body of Christ here now. So I ask, Father in heaven, that you would anoint me to speak as the oracles of God what you are saying to the body of Christ in this hour what you were saying to the nations in this hour and to individuals, those that do not know you, those that are thirsty for reality, those that know you and are waiting on you, desiring your destiny to be made clear in their lives for your glory. Father, I ask that I would be hidden, that people would be touched to see you in your glory, that your word would have free course and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that the theme passage that God is wanting me to share is from Joshua chapter 4. And so we will read this 24 verses of Joshua chapter 4. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe and man, and command you them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place. 
where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan as the Lord spake unto Joshua. According to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them onto the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood and they are there unto this day. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people, according to all that God commanded Joshua. And the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the ark of the Lord passed over. And the priests in the presence of the people and the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up onto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned onto their place and flowed over his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal, meaning rolled away, in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you, until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that ye might fear the Lord your God forever.
That's the Joshua chapter 4. It's very hot today, so once in a while I take a little bit of water when I'm talking steady, as I just was. Um, In this passage in Joshua chapter 4, there is a crossing over. Now the word Hebrew, which is the word that describes the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Hebrew language, I'm learning biblical Hebrew. Ivret, the word Hebrew means crossing over. There comes a place in our lives as individual of decision a decision to either stay with Egypt and go back out of fear for losing those things that are merely temporal gratifications that never satisfy and that they do not have ultimate meaning or destiny or severing them completely. It is a time of decision, and it is also a time of decision in this time of history in the world for many individuals and also for peoples and nations, for those gathered around certain beliefs of hierarchy and structure that can find them in their own shell and limit them from their destiny. It says in Joel, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And that valley of decision is described in Revelations chapter 14 which mentions the two harvests. The first harvest is the harvest of those that have come to fruition in a decision to give their lives onto ultimate destiny, purpose, and meaning, which is found in relationship with their creator, in a destiny to be part of his corporate bride forever that will ever be enlarging in creativity and fulfillment out of fellowship with God. The I am that I am, their creator. The reason the harvest is coming to fruition is because there is the clear manifestation of the maturity of evil. It is no longer hiding It is no longer ashamed. In fact, it's even proud of its self-deceived state, which is a state of destructibility and ugliness. God is calling us as his people to be those that are ready at a moment's notice 
to cross over and to do battle like Israel did in the crossing over the Jordan. But he is also calling many people to cross the Red Sea. The Red Sea, as you know, is a very genuine historical account of the crossing of the children of Israel over the Red Sea. Archaeologists have discovered the Red Sea crossing. There's two large pillars at both sides. Of course, on the Egyptian or Arabian side, forget where it's exactly now, they took down the pillar because it was written in Hebrew and they didn't want people to know about that. Nevertheless, it is on the Israeli side. It was probably erected by Solomon, and of course they have dived down into the Red Sea and found many chariot wheels and chariot parts. And you can watch this. There is documentary on it. There is also a book on it that's got in-depth, high-quality photos throughout the book on the crossing of the Red Sea and all of these things that have been discovered. Even the rock that's split in half has been discovered, which is enormous, and it has this enormous split. And the water lines are still there because the water was so powerful it ran from that rock that you can see all the water that ran out of it, the effect it had on the land. That's all been discovered and verified. And in fact, Mount Sinai is actually in Arabia, as it says in Galatians. And there's blackness on the top of the mountain from where the consuming fire of Almighty God dwelt, as described in the book of Exodus in various scriptures. And so in this Red Sea crossing, there came a point where the Egyptian army actually came after the children of Israel. And they have nowhere to turn because all they have on both sides of them are very steep mountains that they can't climb up. And behind them, the Egyptian army is advancing to slaughter them. And so there's a temptation to panic as Moses stands in front of the Red Sea, which where this crossing has been discovered is not some shallow crossing. It is quite deep, although the descent at that area is a gradual slope, whereas it isn't at any of the other areas, because God in his foreknowledge already had this prepared before even the world was created. He knew how all things would fall in place. For he is attached to every particle of existence with omniscience, that is knowledge that is infinitely great. And he transcends time and space and government as God the Father and sees the end from the beginning. And the full expression of God, the originator, who is the Father, is Jesus Christ, the one that governs in the time and space realm. The full expression of the Father is described in Hebrews 1, 3. So here they are. Do they panic? They certainly recognize their own total helplessness before their circumstances and the enemy and were brought to a place where there was a deep cry in their heart because where they could only turn to was God because they were cornered to a place where they recognized their own frailty and helplessness. And having faith in God, they could channel that instead of into despair and panic into a restful trust in 
God. And so Moses hears from God that he's to take the staff that is in his hand and stretch it out. And the Red Sea begins to depart. And there is a total heaping up of the waters so that they go through, as is the case in the crossing of the Jordan. And so the children of Israel go through in dry land. And the enemy, which is so self-deceived and so filled with his own independence of delusion, no anger, actually doesn't have the common sense because of his fixation on wanting to be in control. In independence and defiance of God over God's people, he goes right into the Red Sea and puts himself in the place where he's vulnerable to the elements and the whole Egyptian army, including Pharaoh, all of them are drowned in the Red Sea. What is God saying to us as his people today? It says in Joel, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And we read about this valley of decision, as I stated earlier, in Revelations chapter 14. So I will turn to Revelations chapter 14 at this point. And we'll just look at that passage of scripture in Revelations chapter 14. I'm waiting for this um, to come forth here on my um, iPod. And so... Sometimes there's a little uh, bit of a interruption getting this uh, to go to the right passage of Scripture. Okay, we're going to go to Revel Revelations chapter 14. And here we go to Revelations chapter 14. And I want to read about these two harvests. Probably it's around verse 12 is my guess. And it's talking about, in Revelations 14, it describes first the chronology of the major events that will happen. So you have three angels earlier before it describes the harvest. The first angel is preaching the everlasting gospel, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. What is happening right now in the world is that there is the beginning of the everlasting gospel that is being preached as never before. And the essence of the message of this everlasting gospel is to fear God because it is the key 
to genuine relationship with him, which is manifested in genuine worship. That's why it says worship him and give glory to him. Because the hour of his judgment is coming. I am one of many that has been raised up at this hour to preach that everlasting gospel. And I'm not here to fully describe what it means by the everlasting gospel. I will say it briefly, sketching it. The everlasting gospel was actually in existence even before the world was created. It was preached from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve, it is preached now, and it will be preached throughout eternity. So what is the message that has been even before the world was created? The key is found in verses such in Revelations 18, which says that the Lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. How is it that Jesus Christ was slain, the Lamb of God, for our sins before the plans for the foundation of this planet and all that's in it was laid. Before the world was created, it was a reality in God as good as if it was done that Jesus Christ was slain. How is that so? Let me briefly describe God to those that are new. And even for those that are mature, this will greatly enlarge you. And so to describe the being of God, I will emphasize that God is love. It says in 1 John twice, God is love. It's using the word agape, which is the highest and most superior form of love. It is greater than merely a soulish love, which is filio, which is an emotional love, a psychic love. And it is certainly greater than eros, which is the sexual love. This love is a quality in the being of God that is always out of its own, out of his own free will. For it says concerning God that he works all things in the world and in his creation together onto the pleasure of his goodwill. You can read about that in passages like Ephesians chapter 1. And so this love that is totally out of his own self-originating free will is a quality that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal gratification which would imply that such choices would have an element of corruption in them. Yes, this love is innate with integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to this ultimate perfection of love. It consumes with judgment all that would be contrary to choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal gratification that would obviously therefore have corruption in it. This is the defensive aspect of the being of God known as the holiness of God. It is the integrity of God's being of love. It is the foundation from which springs forth 
creativity and expression of love and creativity that is ever enlarging without corruption. In other words, it can contain unlimited power and life without corruption so that it can ever expand in creative expression to greater and greater realms of enlargement and fulfillment. In that expression that springs forth from the foundation of the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, there is the ultimate expression of this love. In being able to have such a great purity of love that judgment can be absorbed by God himself upon himself in order to assure to those who have sinned through indirect temptation via the physical realm to ensure to such beings that have not that have not deliberately get, went against the direct presence of the spirit of God's blessing like Lucifer and other beings to assure to them destiny everlasting destiny and forgiveness in the fact that they can repent and receive God's forgiveness yes God the full expression of God came into this world in Jesus Christ, the one and only expression of the being of God, to rule over the time and space realm, to have relation with his creation, and expressed his love to the point that he humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you can choose to receive his atoning sacrifice on the cross, his love outpoured in his blood that can cleanse you and make you white as snow from all your sin and forgive you when you turn to him and say, I receive your atoning sacrifice of love. I ask for forgiveness. I ask that you be the center of my love, of my life. So, be the Lord and the Savior of my life. This love of God is that great. And this message of the gospel is a message that has always been, for it has always been in the being of God, that there is such a purity of love that it is not only perfect in holiness, and integrity with no corruption, but it is so transcendent out of that perfection and purity that it is ultimate in its perfection, in the manifestation of the power to assure mercy and forgiveness, because it was in the being of God to always have that which is the ultimate manifestation of ultimate trustworthiness, which is a love 
that can be transcendent with the power to assure mercy without violating the integrity of his love by taking judgment upon himself for you. That was always in the being of God from before the world was created, not just as a capacity, but as a reality. That is why it says, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. There has always been worship towards God by the angels and all creation from when even the world was not created because they recognized in the being of God such an ultimate perfection of holiness and of creativity that was transcendent beyond that. That there was always the recognition of a moral capacity that could actually take judgment upon himself and was not merely a capacity but expressed as a reality in his creativity that sprang out of the integrity of his love. And so the gospel was preached from the time of Adam and Eve that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness if we repent and receive his forgiveness. It was always recognized that God is the source of forgiveness and not some creature. They recognized that the animal sacrifices was not the source of forgiveness from the very beginning. They recognized that the animal sacrifices was able to cleanse the physical realm and their physical body to allow the Spirit of God to dwell with their soul and spirit, but that it could not represent their soul and spirit and cleanse their soul and spirit. They experienced being brought forth anew by the Spirit of God upon repentance and receiving God's forgiveness, recognized by placing their hand on that innocent lamb, which was a symbol of their sin being placed upon that lamb, and yet realizing that the source of forgiveness, the one that was granting them forgiveness, was not within the lamb, but was in God. That's why we received a passage this week that clearly makes that the case. It says in Micah 6, 6 to 8 this, Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The implication is none of these things can atone for the soul. Ye show thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. So this everlasting gospel is Part of worshiping God. In fact, it is involved in the message that I've been telling you about in Revelations 14, that the message of the gospel in the last days is to fear God. What does it mean to genuinely reverence, to genuinely fear God? This is a healthy fear that's on to life, like fearing the law of gravity. It's not a negative fear that is conscious of loss to self as the main focus. It is a consciousness that causes a dependence of abiding in the very life source of all things who is God. And how does that happen? 
It happens by recognizing the reality of who God is, which is a choice. The fear of God is a choice to choose to recognize God for the reality of who he could only possibly be to be the Almighty's one that is everlasting. And that is this quality that I've been describing of the holiness of God. That is the integrity of his love that springs forth in the expression of his love and creativity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice in order to bring forth a corporate bride. That is God's ultimate purpose. A corporate bride, which is reflected in female and male counterparts through everything that God has created. It is reflected in creation because it is the ultimate purpose for which all things are created. They are created for God's pleasure. And they find only their ultimate lasting satisfaction and pleasure in finding their destiny in fellowship with God. What we have in this passage of scripture is this secret of the fear of God. It is the secret of abiding. In fact, in Isaiah, I'm guessing, I believe if I remember right, it's Isaiah 33. I may be wrong. It's been a while. But anyhow, in Isaiah, it says, concerning the Messiah, because that's clearly what the context is, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Yes, Jesus Christ himself who is fully God manifest in the creation realm to have fellowship and communicate and govern with his creation is also treasuring the fear of God because it is the very secret of abiding in complete oneness with God. And that secret lies in a choice that is not a mere intellectual ascent but a deep turning and circumcision from the depths of one's being choice of recognition, to recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy can only be so in the fact that his holiness, the integrity of his love is totally pure and therefore is able to hold goodness. It recognizes the holiness of God is ultimately trustworthy to be the very quality that could only possibly hold unlimited power in life and a state of goodness without corruption. If there was corruption, it would no longer be a state of everlasting goodness. It is a choice to recognize out of that right recognition of the holiness of God, the greatness of God's mercy, that he must be merciful. For it wouldn't make sense that he could be fully trustworthy if he could not assure to his creation destiny upon their choice of receiving his mercy manifested in atoning sacrifice that was ultimately revealed in the center of history when God showed his love to the point of outpouring his natural life's blood on the cross 
His union with God was never broken. He always trusted in the Father. Yes, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But his spirit was in total faith, in a state of total selfless trust, where there was no corruption in his spirit and his soul. It was like an open hand. It was not a fist. There was total purity of trust in the Father through that contradiction of experiencing the judgment of God being absorbed upon himself. And because his spirit was pure and kept pure even through that experience, he was able to rise from the dead. For it says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. That was the spirit of holiness in him that was manifested in a state of total selfless trust in the Father to which he commended his soul and spirit when he was on the cross. Instead of having in his why of being forsaken a fist of rebellion. This everlasting gospel has been preached from the very beginning in Christ. And it says in John 14, before Christ died on the cross, you know him for he dwells with you because then their soul and spirit couldn't be cleansed. And then he says, you, you know him for he dwells with you, but he shall be in you. There will be the indwelling after Christ died on the cross and became an atoning sacrifice that could represent our soul and spirit in total purity for only a pure sacrifice. One who was tempted without sin could possibly absorb our judgments. And so Christ, through his obedience against all temptation, as it were, took the first man, Adam, who sinned, and through his obedience nailed him onto the cross that we could be put into the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ. This is the everlasting gospel. And it is the focus of such amazing love and worship, and it comes out of choosing to fear God, out of choosing to recognize in God the Father, that ultimate perfection of holiness out of which springs the ultimate manifestation of mercy. And in that recognition of God the Father, there is the expression of the Father to us, which is the revealing of the Son. For Christ said, whoever has taught, been taught and learned of the Father comes to the Son. Because when you really see who God is, you choose to fear him and recognize him in these two states that manifest the ultimate quality of trustworthiness, which is the ultimate perfection of love. When you recognize that, you are brought to the place where your heart is circumcised. The shell of the seed is broken open and the life of God comes into that seed. The hand goes from a fist your soul goes from a fist to a hand of surrender and trust because you recognize what is ultimately trustworthy. You've chosen to recognize it and receive it therein. And so the Spirit of God comes to dwell with your soul and spirit. So now you have two open hands which form the symbol of hands in prayer. Now they can't close into a fist because you have a new nature, because the Spirit of God is dwelling with your soul that is in a state of selfless trust and held therein by the dwelling of the Spirit of God in a new divine nature, which is described in 1 John when it says, 
Whatever overcomes the world, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And whatever is born of God is this, it is our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world. It is the new divine nature, which is a state of faith brought forth by the dwelling of the Spirit of God in our soul and spirit and before Christ came on the cross with our soul and spirit. So we have here the everlasting gospel, which I'm describing in Revelations 14. And we'll go back to just go looking at that passage of Scripture in Revelations 14 now. And so this is the message that is being preached at this time. Is it to never before come into a place of choosing to fear God? This comes initially in conversion. It says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk you in him. It was that publican that smote and beat his breast and bowed his face to the ground and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that Christ said was justified before God, not the Pharisees that were thanking God for how righteous they were in their own self-sufficiency. The fear of God is not a state of trusting in our own self-sufficiency. It is the very secret of abiding from the very time of Adam and Eve. It is the secret of abiding even before the world was created in the triunity of the one true God. For Christ treasures the fear of God because it is that secret of abiding. And it is described in Colossians as well. I'll turn to Colossians and just read that to bring out the secret of abiding. Colossians, I believe it's chapter two. And we here read this. Paul says in verse one, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. And unto all, riches of the full assurance of understanding what to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ and that mystery is that secret oneness between the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit which is described in John 17 where Christ says my prayer is that as I abide in oneness for the, with the Father, so you would experience the same oneness in me and with each other. You see, when there is the genuine fear of God, it bursts a circumcision in the heart that breaks the state of pride, the state of self-worship. Even what I've been describing about the being of God is really well illustrated in the fact that in all creation there are negatives and positives which are represented in the negative symbol and the positive symbol in electricity and mathematics. The negative symbol represents the integrity of God's love, that is, his holiness. It cuts off all that is corrupt. It represents foundation, that which is without corruption and integrity. And it is out of that foundation represented in the negative symbol that cuts off all corruption that springs forth the ultimate positive, which is the symbol of the cross, that God can transcend the integrity of his love with a power to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. 
so that you can have the ultimate positive of being part of his corporate bride of ultimate destiny. And in the triunity of God, Christ recognized the beauty and the glory of the Father and the integrity of his love and the creativity that was springing out of it in such incredible love that he said to the Father, in essence, Father, I love you so much that I want to express my love to you. I'm hungry for it to be enlarged in expression unto you. So I want to go into a great condescension to suffer more than the mere creature man and humble myself more than a mere creature man so that I can bring unto you, Father, a corporate bride that you can experience as a thank offering from my heart so that you can be enlarged in that. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I love you so much that I, as much as it hurts, I am willing to let you go into this great condescension so that you can experience enlargement in a corporate bride that you bring unto me. So we see that the secret of abiding is in the fear of God. For Christ was reciprocating not from his head, but in his heart. Out of the fear of God relationship. That is why it describes that the answer and the secret to abiding here in Micah 6 verse 8 is this. Oh man, what is good? He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy. Yes, to love the mercy of God. And that causes us to be in brokenness and humility before God. And it conquers all things. Now, in the book of Revelation here, in this passage of Scripture, we go on and might briefly describe the next angel, which is describing the fall of the world system, which is destroyed by the terrible deception of the Antichrist that uses probably nuclear weapons to destroy the democratic free world that has become no longer pure, but flaunts blasphemy before God and sexual immorality and defiance of the truth, holding the truth in unrighteousness. And after that comes the third angel, saying, If any man worship the beast in his image, or receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So after the world system is destroyed, the Antichrist system is set up, and there there is the clear decision. Either you're in the world system of the Antichrist, or you have a total crossing over in, from the, in the Red Sea to the other side. You become a true Hebrew, a child of God, a true Jew that is circumcised in heart. Whether you are from natural origin as Jewish or not is not the issue. It is the issue that your heart is circumcised before God because you've chosen to fear God. And then we have in Revelations 14, the two reapings of the harvest after it mentions that the patients, that are, the saints that are patient 
and do not receive the mark of the beast. Here are they that keep the commandments and God have the faith of Jesus. And it talks about them being blessed. And I'm not going to get into all this, but you have the two harvests. The first harvest is the harvest of the multitudes of souls that come to Christ in this time of tribulation where the world system is destroyed as we know it and a new system that is totally controlling of the masses and oppressing of the masses is set up under the Antichrist. And then after that harvest is reaped, the second harvest is the harvest of judgment where the Antichrist and his world system is destroyed. And it says in the end here in this passage, and the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furloins. What is that? Something like 1400 miles? I don't know exactly. But it's also described in Revelations 19 where it says, then I saw the beast and his army gathered together against him that sat upon the horse to make war with him that sat upon the horse. And it goes on to describe how the sword comes out of the mouth of the Messiah that's sitting on the white horse with the armies of God and causes all of these armies to be destroyed and the beast and the false prophet to be cast into the lake of fire. In this passage of scripture today and the various passages that, that we have received this week, the theme is on entering into intimacy with God. Even on this crossing of the Jordan River, the word Jordan means to descend. It means a descender, to literally go downwards. When we are facing circumstances that are beyond our control, when we are in trials where we don't know where to turn and God has his corner, it is to bring us to the place of a true circumcision, a true turning in our heart that takes the veils off our heart to see God in his glory for who he is, in his full reality of love. That is this ultimate, as it were, negative and positive. It is then that we can rest and trust God to make a way where there is no way. But if we are cocky and self-sufficient and trusting in our own strength and power without recognition of relationship with God from our heart, we still must have those things broken in our lives. As I mentioned, the crossing of the Jordan was at was near Adam and at Zaratan. Adam meaning man and Zaratan meaning to puncture. It is when our natural strength is punctured that we are broken and we can relinquish trust onto God in our lives. This doesn't mean that we are not courageous and bold. When they crossed the Jordan River, they crossed and they chose to be courageous and bold because they knew where their identity is. They knew it was in ultimate destiny in heaven with the corporate bride in fellowship with God. They knew that it didn't matter, that it was worth it all. It is only when you wreck, you cannot recognize that following God is worth it all until you've had a revelation 
of who God is in your heart, and that can only happen when you choose from your heart to not be offended at the holiness of God. The holiness of God results in a lot of suffering in this world because of the rebellion of man against God, affecting all creation in a state of corruption and of much suffering. And what happened to Cain was he was offended at the holiness of God. And so he became alienated in his heart with offense so that he viewed God more as an enigma. And so he thought that somehow he could please God by bringing his own sacrifices before God. His own performance. He didn't see or rightly recognize the holiness of God because of the offense that he had in his heart against the consequences of God's holiness. And so he did not see in the holiness of God the goodness that was contained by the holiness of God in mercy, in the power to assure forgiveness. He didn't recognize the greatness of that holiness. He could not bring what is acceptable before God out of his own sufficiency. And so he was all the more offended when his offering was rejected, so that eventually he set up a city where he had a different image of God. And I can't go into it in detail. I've been studying from redmoonrising.com where it's hard to find the books, but they have the books for free up there to read. They're in-depth discoveries in archaeology going back to the very first city after the time of flood, Erudu. And I can't go into it, but there's very clear evidence that they recognized that city, that it was the same city of Cain before the flood. They probably knew where its location was because of location in relation to where the ark went down and so on. And it was a thousand years from the time of Noah approximately to the time of Abraham. But in the city of Arudu, way before the time of Abraham, they set up a god known as Anu, the one that was the creator and so on, and then they formed a female god and by Another thousand years, they had over 750 gods. And I can't go into it. Abraham was brought up in the adulterous city of Ur after Nimrod was destroyed. In the writings of the clay tablets that are not in the Bible, it clearly describes the confusion of tongues and the death of Nimrod, who had developed a powerful antichrist world system, which you can find in various recordings, not in the Bible, that Nimrod said that he hated God and that he would take vengeance against God for the flood. You see, he was offended at the holiness of God. And so you have this counterfeit religion that is offended at the holiness of God that's manifested in two extremes. One is a God that is holy and controlling but has no mercy and is very vengeful. And the other is a God whose love has no integrity and that is filled with immorality. And those two types of religion began to stream forth. In the time of Abraham and the city of Ur, it was the moon God. And they sacrificed children, I read, to the moon God. Abraham was called out of that idolatrous city. But that moon religion spread to Babylon and it spread into the Arabian belief and the top god on that rock that they go around before Muhammad came was called the moon god and referred to as the god as well, which means Allah. Later on, Muhammad did renounce that moon god. 
but they still went through the same practices going around in a circle as they did before they renounced them on God. But that's all here and there. I'm just pointing out some things that are interest. In these passages of scripture, what God is wanting to bring out He's challenging us to get ready to cross over, to be bold and courageous because we are coming to a place where you must take a stand at any cost. And the only way we can do that is when we've really seen what is valuable. Christ said the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in the field, which when a man searched for and he found, he sold all that he could had in order to gain that pearl of precious price. And when we really see where our true meaning and fulfillment and destiny is, that it's in our relationship with God, we can let go and let God have his way. We can cut off the world and cross over and take a step into impossible odds like they did into the Red Sea, like they did into Jordan because the waters didn't recede until the priests actually put their feet in the water. It's interesting that some of the passages I got this day, for example, Ezekiel 20 this week, there's a word in here, believe it or not, it's the word bama. You know what bama means? Bama means an elevation, something that's lifted up. The heights of Baal. This is the counterfeit God that was set up by Nimrod. It says there will come a time in Hosea where they'll no longer call me Lord, but they'll call me husband. The word Baal means Lord. It is the perception of a God that is controlling and does not is not able to assure mercy and destiny. It justifies independence from God because it allows you to go through rituals of sexual promiscuity. It justifies temporal fulfillments, but bondage. And in this passage of Ezekiel, the Lord makes some interesting statements. He says in 25 of Ezekiel 20, Wherefore I gave them also statues that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. This was because they refused to humble themselves and to repent of their sins and to recognize their need of God. To choose, They refused to fear God. And so God gave them laws and statues, it says here that were not good, whereby they would not be able to live in a relationship that was fulfilling with God. Then he says in verse 29, then I said unto them, what is the high place whereunto ye go? And the name thereof is called Bama unto this day. He let them go into a state of pride, of independence from God. In verse 13 of this chapter, it says, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not on my statutes, and they despised my judgments. Which if a man do, he shall even live in them. 
and my Sabbath they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Why is it important? I mentioned earlier that the word Sabbath means cessation. It's cessation of our own self-initiations like Cain had before God out of offense against the holiness of God that would not allow him to fear God. Eve, the moment she allowed herself to be deceived and buy into the doubt of half God said, no longer viewed God as ultimately trustworthy. She lost the fear of God. But they did come to a place where their sin was exposed and they came and acknowledged and confessed their sin to God and received his mercy and were clothed with skins of the animal representing the atoning work of Christ that covers us in his blood from our sins so that we can be received of him and restored into fellowship. So God allows us to be cornered through our own devices to the place of total futility. And this is mentioned in Ezekiel 26 of chapter 20. And I polluted them in their own gifts, in that they caught in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate to the end, that they might know that I am the Lord. They come to the place of desolation like the prodigal son, where it says in Hosea chapter 3, that they will, God will make the valley of Acre, that is the valley of trouble, a door of hope, and then they will sing unto the Lord in the last day. And of course, this cornering is described of the nation of Israel in Zechariah chapter 12, where as their military might is broken and they turn to God and have nowhere else to turn, the Lord returns and it says, they will look upon me, that's God speaking, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Look it up in Zechariah chapter 12. So also in Ezekiel 20 here, it describes a time when Israel will be restored to the Lord. And it says, and there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled and ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, not according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord. I also received this week on Wednesday Isaiah 66. I suppose I could turn to that passage. Well, let's just go to Isaiah 66 and just read a little bit there now that my iPod is working. Forgot to have it prepared when I did the first few passages. But here we're going to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And I guess I'll just open it up to verse 1 and find the passage. And here it is. Verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, 
even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And I won't go on to, and it goes on in verse 5 also, and says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. There's so much one could share in here. There's not time to go on, continue to share in a message, which may be well over an hour now. I don't happen to have the time exactly on me at this point to check that out. But um, God knows. To see what the time is, it's a little over an hour. And the Lord is wanting his people to wake up because multitudes are in the valley of decision as it mentions in Joel chapter 3. And there are multitudes that are being drawn into a counterfeit false religion as I mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 3 that deny the power of God to live a holy life. God is calling his people right now to wake up. What does that mean, to wake up? Many of us are asleep. We don't even know what's going on around us. We don't even know, some of us, what's going on in the news that is so shocking. We're on the verge of these major, major events that are described of in Revelations chapter 14. I just pray that this angel that preaches the everlasting gospel that there'll be more time to reap that harvest yet before there's the destruction of the world system, which you can find on my site at loverealize.com, which has been prophesied by great men of God will come. <clears throat> that judgment can be minimized in the United States and Canada and the free world if people and the church repents and wakes up. What does it mean? It means that we no longer limit God in the shells of our own ways in these last days. That there's a total crossing over. That there's a total cutting off. That we choose to be strong and courageous like Joshua. And Caleb were. They had another spirit because their spirit was, their soul was conformed to the image of God through a life of waiting on God, of recognizing, of turning from the heart through much prayer, recognizing the being of God through waiting upon him, which means to cease from our own self-initiations. It involves spending quality time seeking God. It means that we're willing to give up a job that gets in the way of our relationship with God or any temporal things of this world to have that wonderful intimate relationship of fellowship with God and to let him direct our lives. It means in the body of Christ, the leadership, when they start their meetings, don't start them with a program where they're running everything, but they get on their knees and on their faces and get the congregation to get on their knees and their faces with them and be in awe of who is in their midst and become more conscious of Christ walking in their midst than of what's going on around them and of their program. 
It means to turn with all our hearts and to pray and to humble ourselves and to repent of our wicked ways. In North America, the call is to repent of unholiness, to repent of the gods of amusement, of pleasure, and of idleness. How many people justify spending hours and hours watching sports and have robbed themselves of a life of relationship and prayer with God? These have become idols. It says in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, idleness of bread. No, pardon me, pride, idleness, and abundance of bread. God is calling his people to repent of pride. Being puffed up with pride, having abundance of bread, not humbling ourselves. fast even at times, to pray, to seek his face. When we start meetings as believers, forget about the pre-service prayer meeting and make the church service his house of prayer, out of that will rise forth tremendous creativity and worship and song and in liberty and in joy. Each member of the congregation will share in liberty as the Spirit moves on them. The pastor will preach and his messages will be confirmed by what the Spirit is saying through the members of the body and vice versa. We will, as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God spoken out of the Spirit of love that breaks the hardness. Adultery will cease. I never forgot the woman that shared how she was challenged to wash her husband's feet when she was planning to divorce him. And so she couldn't do it at first, but she finally did. And she washed his feet with a towel. And he said, no, no. And tears started to come down his eyes. And tears started to come down her eyes. And the hardness was broken and the spirit of adultery with the world was broken that was causing a hardness in their hearts that was stopping them from loving one another and causing them to come to the place of committing adultery with each other. God is calling his people out of the world to repent, to learn to encourage the body of Christ and facilitate it to share and move in the gifts of the spirit so that God can pour more abundant honor on the part that lacks, as it says in Corinthians, that there should be no schism in the body, because when more abundant honor comes on those that are less attractive and charismatic by the gifts of the Spirit, it humbles those that tend to be looked up to and undoes the spirit of pride that is the root of division and of denominationalism. We are commanded to receive one another as Christ received us, and he received us as sinners. God is calling us to allow him to come down as the head and fully inhabit his body, that we be put together as living stones, as inhabitation of God through the Spirit, that his bride would come forth and be filled with his presence that will break the power of the enemy. It's like filling a glove with your hand once the power of God fills the living stones of his people, all those things that are of this world that are filled with corruption will shake and disintegrate. 
and it will be like the little stone cut out without hands that eventually fills the whole earth. The Antichrist armies and the Antichrist will be destroyed. That Antichrist system has been from the very beginning, from the time of Cain. For it says in Revelations 18 concerning Babylon that in her was found all the blood of those that were shed from the time of Cain. Nimrod set up that Antichrist system which came out of the city of Cain where he set it up. Throughout history there's always been a remnant, always, that has not bowed the knee to Baal that is always refused to receive the mark of the beast. And they are the ones that will be in the first resurrection mentioned in Revelations 20. They are the ones that will be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed is he who is called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. That's also in Revelations 19. Thank you for listening to this message. May God bless you. I look forward to continuing to minister and share the word of God.